There was just a magic and a beauty and a freedom here that was happening really in the country. It was, you know, summer of 69. Big Sur was, was a mecca for all the change and all the the newness that was going on, and, and especially with the younger generation. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is longtime Esalen staff member Peggy Haran. Peggy is known far and wide for her exceptional work as an Esalen massage therapist and massage teacher. It was my pleasure to visit Peggy recently at her home on Gordon Mountain, which she shares with her husband, the artist Richard Haran. You may at times hear the chirping of birds or the cackling of roosters in the background, and I apologize for that. But in a certain way, it seems almost appropriate for a discussion featuring a woman who came to Big Sur to embrace nature in all its various forms. I am joined today by Lucia Haran, Peggy's eldest daughter, who assisted me in delving into the rich legacy of a beloved and respected community member. So with no further ado, here's our conversation with Peggy Haran. So we're hanging out here with Peggy Haran today. I have brought my friend and colleague Lucia Haran to assist with this interview. And uh, Lucia, I was just hoping that you could take a second to introduce yourself and you know talk about your connection with Esalen and with Peggy. Okay, I'm Lucia and um, I'm Peggy's daughter. I was born at Esalen in the Jade House in 1976. I now teach five rhythms and um, insight meditation and I would say that my involvement with Esalen is as as a lineage carrier or lineage holder of what's been passed down to me um, and empowered to me through my family. So Peggy, I think I would like to, to start the questioning today by having you speak a little bit about what your life was like leading up to your arrival in Big Sur. Where were you? What, were you, what was up with you? Well, I came to Big Sur from New York City where I was living and working in the uh, film advertising photography world as a stylist. And I was introduced to Esalen through friends who'd been to California and knew Big Sur and knew Esalen and came out here in about 67 for the first time. And I was completely taken by Esalen, by Big Sur, by the coast and just decided... I'm going to go there and be there. But it took me a couple of years to um, figure out how to leave my situation in New York. I was married and had a job. My whole family was back there. And so I took my time. And it took a couple of years. And then I got to Big Sur in about 69 Mm -hmm. and stayed for, stayed, here I am. (laughs) So what was what was Big Sur not, not Esalen but what was Big Sur like upon your arrival in the in the late 60s? It was crazy. It was full of hippies, people living in trucks, people everywhere, people playing music, people getting high. But there was just a magic and a beauty and a freedom here that was happening really in the country. It was, you know, summer of 69 and um it, Big Sur was was a mecca for all the change and all the the newness that was going on, and, and it, especially with the younger generation. So I wasn't 
a hippie because I was a little older than the hippies, and it wasn't really who I was, but I was fringe. You know, I believed in the movement. I believed in the freedom and what was happening, and I was kind of trying to find my way in it, but really I was trying to find myself, you know, in, in it all and who I was. I had been raised in a conservative way, a lovely, loving family, and deep friends, a wonderful husband back east, but I, I just had this need to break loose, and I think part of that was because of the times, the 60s. There was so much newness and, and uh, so much mind expanding going on, and we dabbled in that back east, and then I sort of followed my heart and ended up here in Big Sur. What, what aspects, when you say that you weren't a hippie, like what aspects of the hippie lifestyle resonated with you, whereas what aspects of the hippie lifestyle would you say were not for you? Uh, well, I resonated to, as I said, the freedom, the freedom of thought, the freedom of accepting, not accepting what had been presented and, and questioning everything in my past, you know, the, the way I was raised, the, you know, the ability to find my own way in life without accepting what had been given to me, although what had been given to me was wonderful. I, I just had to find out more. I had to explore. I had to, to free myself in many ways. Uh, physically, too. I mean, when I came here, people were dancing. Well, people weren't dancing in New York, where I came from, you know, and there was all this freedom of, of the movement, freedom of thought. There was the Esalen baths and nudity. This was all new to me. But it was very freeing. So that that word is just sort of, you know, underscores how it was for me, just that freedom. And, and being away and being on my, really on my own for the first time was also a very important part of that. So there were things about the movement that were, I really related to. There were things I didn't. I didn't really feel like I wanted to live in a multi-female uh, household with you know one man, which was going on all over the place. Um, I didn't want to live on beans and rice and, and, a, and live in a car. I wanted sort of some of the creature comforts that I was used to. I thought money was okay, which a lot of people didn't think money was okay. Not a lot of money, but some money. You know, wanted a car, a home, just kind of basic things. So I had a little bit more materialism than, than maybe the hippies, and not so much into the free love thing that was happening. I, I was kind of more of, of a serial monogamist. I, I liked to have a boyfriend, but I could move right along if that's what was happening. I'm curious... What was Esalen like when you first showed up, and how did you kind of find your, your niche? How did you find a job? Esalen was just completely powerful and happening and exciting, and, you know, there were so many minds, fabulous, interesting people coming through. Teachings were amazing, and the people who lived there were people who just kind of wandered in. It was a very organic process, and it wasn't crowded in those days. I mean, Big Sur, people didn't even know where what Big Sur was, so people that ended up there were people that, like myself, who just sort of found their way. It wasn't hard to stay there in those days. 
ways. I mean, one way that a lot of people came in was you found a girlfriend or you found a boyfriend. Well, I ran into an old boyfriend of mine, and he said, sure, I've got room. Come on and stay here. So I did. I moved in with him, and we ended up having a couple of wonderful years together and exploring all that was going on there, including, you know, mind-blowing experiences. And then I worked. I got a job in the kitchen. They encouraged everybody to participate in the workforce. So I got a job in the kitchen, and I was hired as a dessert chef. Well, I had never made a dessert in my life. I didn't know anything about cooking. I was really lame in the kitchen, and I didn't like my boss. So the combination didn't work well. (laughs) And I started to study massage, and I loved it, and I had a real calling, a real feeling for it. And so after a few months in the kitchen, I just quit. And I started to do massage, which in those days was, there were only three or four people, maybe, doing massage. And it was very easy to get on the massage crew. Massages, I think, cost $15 at the time, of which we got $12.50. Uh-huh. And uh, we gave massages at the baths. Was there um, a specific style? Like, was the... Esalen massage style in effect at, yes. at that time? Yes, very much. The Esalen style had been developed. It was in effect. It was, you know, influenced by the location next to the water, the flowing movement, the sensory awareness that was being taught by Charlotte Silver, Bernie Gunther, and others at Esalen really helped people contribute to the style of Esalen massage, which was at that point much more sensual than it is now. It was um, slow, it was sensual, it was flowing, and there was always that quality of touch and presence that were important to the work. But it was really the beginnings of what now is, of course, highly developed. The, the way we did it, the presentation was different. It was meant to be more sensual. We were, we were okay with that. We were exploring that because we were exploring touch, you know, and exploring that it's okay to be touched. It's okay to have a body. This was pretty new, you know, after the 50s were a pretty tight time in our our culture. You know, we women came out of wearing girdles and bras into this freedom of none of that. And then from there naked. So there was there was a lot of exploration. It's a little it's different. Sensuality is different than sexuality. And I think that coming out of the era of the 50s where anything that had to do with body was immediately pulled in, um, organized as sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a, a place of where the even the language was beginning to differentiate that there was this other thing called sensuality, which was the awareness of the senses. And then when you found the belly dancing and the movement and the dance and it awakened this passion it's the pleasure in the body and the beauty of feeling so beautiful and when you were so pregnant and with your beautiful long hair and the the drums playing it's like this awakening the deep sense sensuality within you which I think is really important differentiation between Mm -hmm. just the sexuality and the also through Esalen massage and the practice of embodiment and sensory awareness and presence that um it was it's a was a, a time where that was awakening a 
uh, uh, in a way a, a place of being divorced from the body and also that the body was like deadened there wasn't any information being gathered it was just living within the head and between the ears and that sensory awareness and the movement and the massage was all bringing this embodied presence downward and gathering deep insight and information from these other places that had in the past been kind of turned off and shut down and now we're being awakened mm -hmm. in a very passionate and heartfelt way. When I was pregnant with Lucia, I got into belly dancing and Middle Eastern dance and music completely absorbed me. I mean, nothing had ever touched me like that before. And, and also the, the physicalness of it, you know, the dance was something that I hadn't explored as a younger person. When you first arrived at Esalen in the late 60s, early 70s, was there a, um, an element of idealism there that uh, often when I hear about or read about the 1960s, it's, it's characterized by this hope and this, uh, this open-heartedness, was that felt at Esalen at the time? Oh, yes. Yes. There were, people were so open. People were really loving and open. And that was a, very different for me, too, coming from the East Coast. I mean, people were there. They looked at you. They welcomed you. It was a very, very wonderful place in that way. I don't think there was one idealism. I think everybody came with their own stories and looking for whatever it was that we were looking for. And there wasn't one spirituality, although spirituality was definitely alive and happening. And people were beginning to practice yoga and tai chi and meditation. And as always, it's been a very mixed palette at Esalen. And that was one thing that I loved, love about it. And Dick Price always held dear, which was nobody captures the flag were his words, you know, we will offer many, many approaches to change. And uh, that's still true today, which I'm very happy about. Was Dick's presence on, uh, on the Esalen campus something that was felt Oh, very much so. He was very, very hands-on. He was involved in everything, everything. He would come into the office and look at the reservation book, to how our program's going. I mean, he was hands-on, but he was also very, very involved in his own work, which is Gestalt Therapist. He was dearly loved and respected. Yeah. What were some of the workshops that you found interesting in those early years? Um, the encounter workshops were fascinating. They were really extreme, um, very confrontational, and, and uh, boy, people would go at it with each other. Not always with the greatest outcome. Um, damage was done along the way, but it was pretty interesting stuff. And, you know, I was... I was learning how to be real with people and how to be honest. And so it, although those encounter workshops were extreme and I wouldn't want to practice in that way, it did help me to learn how to speak more honestly and openly to people. And that was an important part of my learning because, again, from the East Coast, I was a bit shut down in terms of the way I related to people or, or my ability to be honest with people was was developing. Were those the encounter groups of Will Shoots? Yes, Will Shoots, Steve Stroud, Ed Mopin. Seymour Carter brought in the Synanon group 
their method, which was extremely confrontational. The whole group of people would, would find your weakest spot, and then everybody would come at you. Then there'd be some kind of a breakthrough, breakdown, and then everybody walked away. So there was no sense of putting this person back together or helping them piece together what had just happened. It was just sort of brutally confrontational and um, honest, mm. but tough. And then another thing that I loved back then was the Tai Chi workshops. Um, I was learning massage, and Tai Chi was such a beautiful art form, movement, dance. And we had an instructor who would come and work every Sunday on the deck by the pool. Great big Irish man, giant person who could just float like a butterfly. He was beautiful. And so we did that together every week, and that was that was wonderful. And then some of the Charlotte Silver workshops in sensory awareness, sort of trying to wake up the body and feel. So she would, would walk you through the whole body, the guided meditation through your body to, to listen, to feel. And um, this was new. This was very new, you know. We'd always been the mind, and here was this whole change from mind to body-mind. And so that was a great big piece of it, and it was also a piece of, of the Esalen massage evolution because sensing and feeling, again, was new to many people. And touch, we didn't live in a world where touch was comfortable. We touch, we'd say, excuse me, you know. So all of that was beginning to, to be more comfortable for people through this, and people were allowing themselves to feel, allowing themselves to accept touch, and to accept these feelings. And, and Charlotte Silver's work also included movement, so the awareness mm -hmm. of you know your move, your hand facing up or your hand facing down. So as they were in the process of organizing Esalen Massage, which is a meditation, a moving meditation in some ways, the sensory awareness was a key component. I think yeah, so Charlotte's definitely. work was very impactful. Mm -hmm. Was there a feeling that you were on the cutting edge of something, or was there a feeling, I mean, both of these could be true, but that was there a feeling that this was esoteric and that it was not being accepted by the, by the mainstream? Yeah, probably a little of both. Certainly, massage was not accepted by the mainstream back then. If you, if you, you know, they associated with massage with prostitution, and now there's massage on every block in every town. <laughs> so it's it's changed a lot. Um, so there was a feeling, yeah, there was a feeling we were hopeful that we could bring change, but only through this tiny little microcosm. And we have, amazingly enough, we have. But um, there was also a feeling that it was esoteric and it was very difficult to translate what we were doing to people who hadn't been there. And you'd have to say, well, you must come and experience it for yourself because what I can tell you is my experience, but you need to experience. I heard there was waitresses in the lodge mm. when in the in the 1960s where they're still when you showed up in 69 yes that was lovely um waitresses and long skirts and you'd sit down to dinner and i think there was a choice vegetarian or non-vegetarian i can't quite remember but they served your dinner of course it was very small at the time there was a very small amount of guests it was so intimate that the first time that I came here, they sent somebody to the airport to pick me up. I flew up from L.A. 
I arrived at the airport, and they would just ask you, do you need a ride from the airport? Well, I was the only one, and this man met me. He was such an amazing character. He had flaming red hair, he had no teeth, and he had the biggest smile I ever saw. His name was Ed, and he was the baker. And he was such a wonderful guy, and he, he took me down there. He said, oh, you're just going to love Esalen. And we chatted the whole way down, and he brought me right right there. And so it, w- it was so different that it was so tiny and small. Joan Baez always came and sang. And, oh, my God, they, that one with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Oh, I can't even remember. There were so many magical moments. In fact, Bruce Spring- Springsteen was there. He was there New Year's 1969. He and a few of his band, I guess the E Street Band, whoever they were at the time, camped up by where Gazebo is now. There was a man named Gopher who had a little magic stone house up there, and they camped in his yard, and they performed New Year's Eve at Esalen. Whoa. Yeah, and I, I think I missed it somehow. I don't think we made it to that performance, but I, I'm a big fan, so years later I read about it in his biography, and I thought, how did I miss that? Music was such a big part of life here. That was one of the magical things about Esalen, and there were so many people who played music. People played bamboo flutes and drums and Lots of music all the time. It was that it was that was so beautiful. Did you mostly stay in Big Sur during during those years? Yeah, we stayed in Big Sur the whole time. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I'd go back east for visits, but once I came here, I really never went back. They didn't get it at all. My parents didn't get it. N- nobody understood what I was doing, and they thought it was. Just maybe she's in a phase, you know, and she'll come back out of it. Uh, and my dad always, when he coming back, you know? <laughs> kind of in, in popular culture, there's this idea that the 70s, there's a bit of a hangover from the 1960s and that idealism, that blossom at that time was kind of dashed. I'm just wondering if you experienced that as... as in the late 70s, I think it was dashed, you know, and certainly into the 80s it was. There was good reason for the dashing because a lot of it didn't work, you know. Um, it's just this land is our land. Well, it's not really, you know. It just, there was so much about the movement that didn't work. The hope was beautiful and the freedom was beautiful, but, and 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 the back to the land worked for some people, but people didn't really know how to live together and work together in a way that would make a lot of that work. Yeah, I I think that it was dashed, and I think people started to go back to more conservative ways. Um, You know, again, the pendulum swinging from one extreme to another. So it it didn't, in the 80s, I think it kind of was extreme back into conservatism in our country. But I don't think Esalen was particularly conservative anywhere along the line. You know, things changed, but I think we've always been on the edge. In the 70s, I was busy having my children, so I was a little bit more tapped out of what was happening to Esalen and sort of more interested in my belly dancing and and having babies. So I, I was a little bit more removed in those days. Tell me about that. What was it like to be, be pregnant and, and have kids at Esalen? Um, it was quite challenging because there weren't a lot of families. There wasn't a lot of family housing. There 
there wasn't any school until Dick Price had a child, and that was one year before I had Lucia. It was 1975. And then a, an amazing woman named Janet Letterman, who had been a teacher and also a student of Fritz Perls, decided to uh, open up a school, a preschool for our kids, for the families there. And she started Gazebo, which was the most amazing school for our children. And, and Dick Price really supported us and supported our work, our midwifery work. He was just so enthusiastic about it. He loved it when we delivered a baby on property. He was, he just thought that was amazing and wonderful. And he, he supported us, allowed us to have midwife conferences there with no charge to the midwives. How did this whole midwife journey begin anyway? For me, it began because my dear friend and midwife, Honey Rose, needed some help. She had so many children, and when she was called to her birth, she needed another pair of hands to hold the newest baby. She had herself six children or something. So I started to go with her to births. No, but actually the way it started for me was not that. Brita Ostrom, who was a good friend of mine, also a massage therapist, was pregnant with Ivy. She invited... Deborah Meadow, Vicki Top, and myself to be at the birth. She had a nurse uh, who was supposed to come and help her with the delivery. It was a home birth, of course. Everybody was having their baby at home at that time. The nurse never got the message and never showed up at the birth. So there we were, the three massage therapists and and the, the father at this at this birth. Well, I knew nothing. I had never been at a birth. Vicky and Deborah were a little more knowledgeable than I was, and Horace the father was too, but he was a little bit, he wasn't really the one to do it, you know. So she depended on the three of us. Somehow it all happened. The baby was born, and I was completely mind blown, and I felt for weeks after that I had this life-changing experience. I was completely, you know, I just, it moves me to think about it now because it was so deep. It was so deep for me. And um, it's important to set the context for Sam, I think, about what era and what was happening for women at that time. Because, you know, midwifery and home birth was basically illegal and a part of the revolution of you know, taking the body back and massage and movement, all of this thing for women and women's empowerment was like, it was a revolutionary time because women's birth and their right to birth had been taken away by all male doctors and uh, cesareans and whatnot and birthing in hospitals with drugs and episiotomies and epidurals. And these women were on the very, very cutting edge of revolutionizing and returning the empowerment of birthing back to women with and Ina May came to, to Esalen and worked with them and they you know they wanted to reclaim something as a, a right that we have as women as an initiation into our feminine power that had been really robbed from not only them but a, an entire culture and an entire society and so they were taking a massive amount of risk having their own babies at home as well as standing up for each other and saying we're going to fight for this and if you won't let us do it we're going to do it anyway as lay midwives 
and there were doctors who were secretly backing them up because they believed about it but in them but they couldn't come out and say it until you know the whole infrastructure and the laws began to change so they were really at the edge of of, of that change which was you know so important and for me as a and the beneficiary of that you know of the work they did you know to be able to have a baby in a natural way yeah, thank you that's good very true what was it like having your children at gazebo was it something also lucia i'm curious how it was for you going to this school if, if it has some discernible effect on the person you've become I, I imagine it has. I can't, I can't imagine it hasn't. I mean, you know, when you're a child, I think growing up, especially in such a fringe way for an American, quote unquote, American girl, um, I think that that um, it was all just very normal to me that the way that I grew up, the community, the society, the culture, growing up around a lot of adults and kind of revolutionary thinkers. But what the gazebo did was cultivate very healthy and well-balanced children who are in touch with their bodies and I feel in touch with feelings and being able to have emotional intelligence and be able to communicate that emotional intelligence and also work together as as a community and resolve issues in a very clear and loving way between children and teachers and I think a lot of what I do now is is actually breaking down a lot of the conditionings that people learned when they were very young so that they can come into some kind of healthy, balanced place. And I think if more people raise their children in, you know, nature school with emotional intelligence and communication skills, they would be a lot further along and ahead of the game rather than having to go back and do a lot of work as adults to unlearn a lot of things. So, um, and, and, and I, and there's a positive and negative to everything, you know, there's a light and shadow to everything. And I think the only thing on the, the not so positive aspect of growing up in a community that was gestalt based primarily, which was, you know, Dick's focus. And though there were many other wonderful modalities being developed at that time, everyone was going around processing. And so kids don't really need to be around that. And being taught about process work and and encouraged to process all the time left me believing all my feelings that everything I felt was true and as a as an adolescent I had and a young adult I, it wasn't until I turned to insight meditation and vipassana that I started to realize everything I was feeling wasn't true and then I feel like that I had to kind of rebalance some of the gestalt mentality to come into a more um, clear understanding of the way of, of myself and the way things are in myself and in other people. What do you think, Peggy? It, it was cutting edge at the time, very much. Janet was very much a cutting edge human being. She was amazing. She didn't have her own children, but she knew so much about children and how to raise them and how to be with them. And she everything in her mind like that she built the gazebo on the premise that it, everything there is for children it's their safe environment and and so everything was their size you know the little benches the little stools pottyville uh, 
everything was made for the children and the ground was not flat so that the kids learned right away they had to balance and get into their bodies and they they weren't in concrete but they were in nature and the eucalyptus trees and the butterflies and and there were always animals goats pig we had a pony since we have uh, uh, Lucia here before uh, her daughter Olivia might wake up, I wanted to pose a couple questions about dance. What was dance like when you first showed up um, at Esalen, and, and how did it evolve and, and change when, when you were there? Well, that was one of the things that I was so taken with when I got there. There was music all the time, and the music on the deck, the back deck of Esalen, and just people dancing, men and women just freely dancing. And I just thought that was the most wonderful thing I'd ever seen. And um, Gabrielle Roth was there, and she was beginning to she was beginning her work as a dance teacher and she was just starting to develop it. Anna Halpern was there. Anna was a little further along in her evolution as a teacher of movement and so it started to become um, something that was alive in the programming of Esalen and people started to come there to learn movement and it wasn't about performance dance, it was about expressing oneself through movement of the body and Gabrielle was a master at that and Halpern was a master of that. And then Olatunji, Baba Tunde Olatunji, who is an African drummer and dancer, started to come to Esalen and teach African dance. And there was many years of celebrating movement in his way through his his teaching. So there were, and other other forms, contact improvisation that was big for a while. All kinds of different forms of movement began to come in and out, just the way different forms of body work were introduced. And of course, Gabrielle's work developed into the five rhythms practice, and now is alive and well through Lucia and Jonathan Haran and others who come and teach there. Yeah, curious on your your thoughts about being born into this atmosphere of dance and how that ended up being the the work that you do and the lineage that you carry. I guess in a way I was always bred for this. <laughs> you know, it just it's a part of it's who I am, you know, it's in my blood and my bones and um I think in a at one stage when I was in my twenties and leaving I left, you know, I left I did massage for many years and movement and, and was teaching at Esalen and then I went to San Francisco and, and I remember I was talking to actually to Baba Olatunji's lead drummer Sangha, Sangha of the Valley and I said, Oh, you know, I, I just feel like I need to do my own thing you know I just do everything that my mom taught me everything that Gabrielle taught me I just do what you know I'm they were trying to get away from their conditioning of weather and here I am I do exactly what they all do and um, and he said to me you know Lucia you can um you can try all you want but you can't escape who you are and I realized that was really true my path in life is to share this work and to help others and my baby's waking up a little bit uh-huh. <laughs> third generation contribute some ways I feel like what I do is it's like the continuation you know it's 
when when you're when you're talking about that mom like the balance and the pendulum swinging from one side to the other and you know someone has I feel a responsibility it's also what I feel is my path but I also feel a responsibility and I, I say this to some of the other second generation kids you know like Kai Harper and um, you know Ivy Mayer and other people that I feel like you know we're in a way we have a responsibility to Rudy Price now is carrying you know Chris's work and that, that we are kind of the current manifestation of those who came before us and it's really important I think that the work lives on and it also evolves in a way and as the pendulum swings and you know a, a conversation about ethics and what standards of te- uh, are required for uh, f- from us as teachers and I think that uh, it means a lot to me to to do what I do and also feel that I'm a lineage carrier, that I'm not here, I didn't make any of this up, you know. Everything I do has been empowered or handed down to me, and that, that to me carries a lot of weight, and I think in a world right now where we need so much of that, it's one of the most important contributions that I can make to making harmony and peace and, and, and making the world a happier, more balanced place for us to live in and for our children to live in so um, I feel really honored to have the karma to be born into what I'm born into and have such a loving and supportive mom who has and and father who's passed down so much to me as well as Gabrielle um, that just feels like this is what I'm supposed to be doing I've never really had I've never been searching for what I was supposed to do because I feel like I always I've always known that's just my karma. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious, Peggy. What, when you look at Lucia, what what similarities do you feel that the two of you share, in kind of characterologically? Or well, I think we're two very loving people. Um, I think we share that probably first and foremost. Yeah, and we share the our values, you know, importance of family and and so our ethics. I think are, are very similar in um, what we feel is right and and wrong, and and the degree of honesty with which we approach our lives and our relationships. How about you, Lucia? When you think about your mom, are there aspects of yourself that you see in her? Yeah, <laughs> I guess I I just wish to be as amazing as my mom. I always have looked up to you and always felt you're such an incredible person that I think that, and I think that everybody thinks that about you. <laughs> and um, I just always aspire to be as loving and diplomatic and also clear and strong. You know, I think there's a lot of women who have who have that but don't have the strength and clarity. It's just, you know, this is the the, the ethical gauge. And, you know, it just, yeah, I, I there's... I, I can't say enough in that regard. I'm a good grandma. (laughs) Good gaga. You got some grandma skills? I got some grandma skills, but definitely, yeah. I think that's that's been a big surprise to me, but a great joy in my life. 
what was That's how was it surprising? Well, I didn't have grandmas that I was close to. I didn't know how fabulous a relationship would be, and how much fun, and how deep, and how attached I would be. And Nadia and Jasmine have been with me from the beginning, and um, Olivia and I are bonding each time we're together, and it's really uh, just such a deep and loving and amazing experience and as I say a surprise to me I mean I'd heard other grandmas you know, I, I've become one of those who'll show you pictures and tell you how wonderful my grandkids are so um, yeah did you feel it was like a gift to your kids to have them grow up in this environment with the very much because we're so isolated in Big Sur and there was so much I wanted them to have that wasn't here and but when we moved down here to the mountain, um, we were even more isolated. But we always went to Esalen. They would come up after school and meet me there. So they always had this exposure to this international group of adults. And they knew, they related well to adults. And they they learned from what was going on there and from all the people that they interacted with. And I felt that was such a gift that, that they had that many other kids growing up in Big Sur did not have. It, it, the majesty and the integrity of the land is just beyond words and and I think that's one reason that we've maintained and we're remote and we're small and intimate and and I'll tell you everybody that comes there feels like they've come home and those are the words you hear again and again from the seminarians and the guests and I think what they really feel is they've come home to themselves and it's a place where that's supported and that's what we want people to come home to themselves we want that for ourselves we want that for you you know find out who you are come and learn today's show is produced in conjunction with cheryl frenzel Geraldyn hess Lori putnam shannon hudson and ian golden our music is by nico holloman If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you so much for your contributions to our world.